The Joe Robbins series features an Austin-based amateur detective with a head for numbers and a knack for finding trouble. You can buy the full set of four novels on Amazon for $10 plus tax. To find the novels, type the Joe Robbins series into the Amazon search bar. Welcome to the Sheila Stories, which relate an Australian woman's life of adventure and romance. I'm Pat Kelly, your host and storyteller. Now, to get us all back up to speed, in the last episode, we heard the story Unfamiliar Field, which ended in 1980. At a beach outing with Flossie Parker and her daughter Peggy, Sheila met Peggy's baby girl for the first time. At the end of the story, Sheila knew deep in her core, that the baby girl was special. In today's episode, we will hear the story, The Whole World, which occurs in 1992. The baby girl is now 12 years old, and she and Sheila will compete in a two-seater regatta at the Cape May Yacht Club. The narrator, Thomas, weaves a mystery into the story, The Whole World, that makes his daughter, April, very curious. The Whole World Over the next 12 years, Peggy's baby grew into a girl. She learned to crawl and walk and run and ride a bike. On her visits to Cape May, Sheila taught her to swim and fish and surf the waves with a boogie board. When the girl was eight, Sheila took her sailing for the first time. Sheila was too old to scamper about the boat and lean into the wind but she could sit in the stern and call out instructions. They launched a dinghy from the yacht club into the Cape May Harbor, and over the next four summers, the girl learned how to fly across the water. By the summer of 1992, Sheila had turned management of the B&B over to Linda, who also ran the surf shop. Running the business had become too much for Sheila, although she still ate breakfast with the guests. On a morning in late June, she awoke at dawn. The birds had begun to chirp. A soft light outlined the maple tree outside her window. She dressed and stood before the mirror to put on makeup and fix her hair. Her heart beat faster than normal, her chest full of oxygen. She could hardly keep still. Neil came up behind her, wrapped his arms around her waist, and said, Are you sure you're up for this? What a silly question. He was always concerned about her, when in truth he should watch over himself. He'd had a stent inserted the previous year. Now that was a real issue. They had adjusted his diet and curtailed the wine to one glass a night. Of course I'm sure, she said. I went surfing yesterday, didn't I? Okay, just checking. I'll hitch the trailer. Thank you, dear. Sheila and the girl got out to study the wind and the course. Neil stayed in the truck to wait for his turn at the boat launch. A storm threatened from the north, but they could probably get the race in before it rained. The course was a simple three legs, downwind toward the bend in the harbor, upwind to the bridge, 
and back to the start. The contestants milled around the boat ramp, dressed in shorts and t-shirts and sunglasses. It was an adult-child race, with about 15 other teams, mostly men and boys. A few women with boys, or men with girls, there was only one other woman and girl team. Most of the children were near the age limit, 17, perhaps a year or two younger. The girl chewed her lip, which exposed the braces on her top row of teeth. She said, maybe we should drop out. Drop out, said Sheila. Why? What's troubling you? These kids are big. They have more experience than me, much more. You may be the youngest, said Sheila, but I'm certainly the oldest. Our average age is about right. The girl fidgeted with her shirt tail. Her eyes flitted across the group and settled on a trio of boys. They were strong and athletic. One threw his head back in a laugh. I'm afraid we'll come in last, said the girl. Sheila lifted the girl's chin and brushed a strand of hair behind her ear. Then she said, The only way to lose a race is to not try. A tiny light shined behind the girl's eyes, and she stood taller. Now let's get ready, said Sheila. Neil's next in line at the ramp. At the start, they sailed near the end of the pack, their rhythm off. The girl hesitated when she moved, too conservative, and then she almost fell overboard. Okay, said Sheila. Stop for a second. What? said the girl, her voice rising. She glanced at the leaders. Pretend for a moment we're here by ourselves, said Sheila. It's just the boat and the wind and us. Can you try? The girl swallowed. She closed her eyes and took several slow breaths. She opened her eyes and gazed at Sheila, and Sheila's skin tingled the way it had on the beach when the girl was a baby. All right, said Sheila. Let's go. They worked together as seamlessly as birds flying in formation. The girl moved before Sheila said the words. They skimmed across the surface, with the girl hiking out so far she touched the water with her fingers. They took the lead by the first mark, and after they made the turn, Sheila knew they would win. The last legs of the race were about having fun. Her spirit soared in the sunshine. She relished the breeze on her face, the smell of salt in the air. Is this happiness? she thought. Could you touch an emotion? Smell it? See it? Surely you could. And this is pure happiness. After the race, they picked up deli sandwiches and ate on the porch of the B&B, their bodies still pumped from the thrill of victory. The girl displayed the trophy on the railing for the benefit of all passers-by. Coriopsis and begonias freshened the air. A bumblebee bumbled from bloom to bloom. Was that your best race ever? asked the girl. She rustled a giant potato chip into her mouth. Yes, said Sheila, without question. The rest of the family was at the beach, and the three of them had the porch to themselves. Neil set his empty paper plate aside and leaned back in the rocker with his fingers laced behind his neck, his elbows spread wide. The girl swallowed the chip. Tell me about your next best race. 
Without having to think, Sheila said, It happened a long time ago. An adult child raced like today. We came in second. The winners were a father and son team. The boy and I became friends. We sailed races together, and later we learned how to surf on a beach in Narrabeen. His name was Sean Riker. Tell me about it, said the girl, her eyes bright. Tell me about learning to surf in Australia. Would it bore you, dear? Sheila asked Neil. You've heard the story. His smile widened. I never tire of hearing your stories. So Sheila told the girl about sailing and club races with Sean, which led her to tell stories about Manly Beach and surfing. By then an hour had passed, and Sheila insisted they stop. The waves were breaking on the beach. They couldn't linger all day. Fine, said the girl, but you must tell me more stories. I want to hear them all. I want to know everything and do everything. I want to visit Australia and Africa and all the other continents. I want to explore the whole world. After the story, I observed Natalie and April to gauge their reactions. My heart raced throughout the story, and once or twice I paused to swallow my emotions. Natalie seems complacent, not particularly thrilled with the story. Her face has begun to relax, soften. She's ready for sleep. I glance at Chris. Her eyes scrutinize me. She realizes something has changed. April squints. She is generally a trusting child, but her expression reads as suspicious. There is something funny about that story, she says. Natalie blinks several times and sits higher against the headboard. I don't get it. What was funny? April ignores Natalie, her attention laser-focused on me. You never told us the girl's name. The girl this, the girl that. All the other people have names. Chris leans closer, all ears now. I stumble. Well, uh, I kept her name out of it. Why, said April, what is the girl's name? I breathe deeply and say the name as carefully as I can. Julie. Natalie seems puzzled like she knows she's missed something. April claps her hands. I knew it! Her face breaks into a wondrous smile. I knew it! I knew it! I knew it! Knew what? says Natalie. It's Mommy! The girl is Mommy! Natalie turns to me. No way! I'm struggling. I've known for some time we would come to this moment, but now that we're here, I'm tongue-tied. That can't be! says Natalie. These are like fairy tales. Right, Dad? You made up the stories. Nope, says April, quite sure of herself. Mommy is the girl, and the stories are real. Natalie's eyes implore me to dispel April's confusion, but I nod to confirm the truth. No, no, says Natalie. It makes no sense. If the girl is Mommy, then her mother is our grandmother. I nod again. But Grandma's name is Maggie, not Peggy. 
Your grandmother was called Peggy as a child, I say. But when she grew up, she wanted everyone to call her Maggie. Maggie and Peggy are both nicknames for Margaret, which is Grandma's legal name. April continues to nod and repeats herself. Sheila is real. All the stories are true. Natalie looks at April and then back at me, starting to believe, but not completely there. How did you hear the stories? she asks. Your mom told me the stories when we first began dating. I hadn't thought about them in a long time. In fact, once I started telling you the stories, I had to write them down to make sure I got the details right. They ask more questions, but I put them off. I'm not ready for the next story, and if I answer their questions, I'll have to tell them all the rest. I insist we break for the night. I turn out the light, and Chris and I begin to walk down the hallway. Natalie asks April a question, but with the door closed, I can't understand the words. April answers, and then Natalie says something else. They chatter for the next hour, undoubtedly comparing notes, going back in time to the earlier stories, trying to put together all the pieces of the puzzle. Okay, that's the end of the story, The Whole World, and we've covered a lot of ground. I didn't see this coming, did you? Were you like Natalie, oblivious to the mystery? Or were you April, who grew curious when Thomas neglected to name the little girl in the story? Perhaps you're good at solving mysteries, and you anticipated that there would be an eventual connection between Sheila's world and Thomas's world. At moments, I wondered about it myself. When Sheila moved to Philadelphia to marry Jesse Flynn, the location seemed a suspicious coincidence because it was so close to the home of Thomas and the girls. When you think about it, the Sheila stories that Julie told Thomas many years ago had to come from somewhere. Like so many mysteries, the answer makes sense in the rearview mirror, but I did not expect it. Now that we have this link, we can go all the way back to the first time the two families came together, which, if you recall, was back in 1946 at Fairmount Park in Philadelphia. This occurred during the story Rittner Street, when Sheila and Jesse Flynn lived in an apartment in Philadelphia. On her days off, Sheila would venture out into the city and suburbs to explore her new home. One day, she went to Fairmount Park and met Flossie Parker and her two children, Freddie and Abby. Flossie was pregnant at the time with Peggy. Many years later, Peggy would grow up to become Maggie, the grandmother of the listeners Natalie and April. We've come a long way in the series, all the way from Queensland in 1935 to Cape May in 1992, but we still have a way to go. When next together, we will hear the final episode of the Sheila stories. I must warn you that the final episode is longer than most. It runs in excess of 40 minutes, but you won't want to miss the story, Last Beach Day, because the narrator himself, Thomas, will finally enter the stage. 
Now I'd like to take a moment to promote my writing, if I may. The Joe Robbins series features an Austin-based amateur detective with a head for numbers and a knack for finding trouble. You can buy the full set of four novels on Amazon for less than $10. In our last episode, I described the second novel in the Joe Robbins series, The Cartel Banker. The third novel in the series is titled A Siren's Love. Here is a brief description of the book. A fraud investigation explodes when Joe discovers the tracks of a serial killer. Serial killers are different. They don't fit easy patterns. Some go years without killing. They kill a few people in one place, disappear, and then resurface somewhere else. Sometimes they have psychological issues, but not always. Sometimes they kill without compassion. Seventeen years ago, in a small town in Oklahoma, a high school boy's affair with his teacher was exposed by his parents. A week later, his parents were murdered and the boy disappeared, never to be found. Five years later, a bouncer at a strip club in Houston went on vacation with one of the dancers. Neither of them returned. Fast forward to today. Sophie Tyler, a beautiful rock star, hires Joe to investigate a fraud. It appears she invested in a fake movie. Joe solves the case in a couple of days. It was the ex-boyfriend. But then the ex is murdered and Sophie's manager disappears. Devastated by the tragedy, Sophie turns to Joe for emotional support. As beautiful as she is, he'd better watch his back. For when you're hunting a serial killer, there's no room for a siren's love. One reviewer had this to say about a siren's love. I could barely put this book down. It's a great vacation read. Easy, clear, fast, and damned interesting. To find A Siren's Love, go to Amazon and type the Joe Robbins series into the search bar. The book is available for $2.99. Don't forget, you can buy the full series of four novels for $10 plus tax. On today's episode, we had music by Cinemedia and sound effects by Noise Creations and Zapsplat.com. Thank you, friends. I'll be back soon. Bye now.